You're listening to the 202 Studio, a podcast series exploring the creative sparks emanating from the District of Columbia. Throughout the series, we'll be talking with artists, humanities practitioners, organizational leaders, and many others, individuals working behind the scenes and in the spotlight, in organizations, studios, and workshops in all eight wards, as we explore the heartbeat of DC's arts, humanities, creativity, and culture. To learn more, visit dcarts.dc.gov. Welcome to the 202 Studio. I'm Jeffrey Scott from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Today, we are joined by the lovely and talented Miss Joy Zinman, who was the founding artistic director of the Studio Theater, uh, which is one of DC's most prominent theater companies uh, that we have. And we're going to learn a little bit about Joy's career and how she came into this business and what she's doing now. So, Joy, thank you for being with us. Not at all. Thank you for having me. So, you started the conservatory before you started the theater. That's right. Three years or so before? Yes. The uh, theater is about to celebrate its 40th anniversary okay. in 2019, and the school is 43 years old. Okay. So, it predated the theater by three years. Okay. So... Tell us and our audience a little bit about your beginnings into the theater world uh, and what made you want to pursue starting your own conservatory and then theater company. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> uh, you want the one minute, the five minute, the three hour version. Start with one minute and, if, and if, <laughs> if I need more information, we can keep talking. Okay, so I was a child actress. Uh, so that's how I began, an equity actress as a child in Chicago. I went to Northwestern University. Mm-hmm. And then I got married and ran away and went to Bangkok and lived in Asia for 15 years, where all of my preparation to become an actor was totally useless. Uh, But there was a tremendous interest in Western realism in Mm. Asia at that time. Um, And so I started to teach and direct and eventually had a career in Asia directing the National Theater of Malaysia, for example. Anyway, I came back to the U.S., and um, I was, you know, nobody knew anything about me or what I had done, and um, I went and got a master's degree in Peking Opera. That's a very specialized discipline, (laughs) I would imagine. And I thought I would teach in university and Mm -hmm. sort of give up my professional you know, aspirations. But I directed a thesis production of a Peking opera, and the people who were in that production um, said, why don't you teach? So they found a space, and then they found another space, and they found another space. So that was the beginning of the conservatory. Okay. And the conservatory was based on the material that I had written to teach uh, Asian actors who were highly trained in a different style, uh, to do Western realism. So it was very fundamental. Mm -hmm. Like, what is acting? What is fundamental, basic Western realism? So that was the conservatory. It it was a three-year program, and I started to train people and train teachers. And um, in the third year, I rented a space downtown on Rhode Island Avenue, just a few blocks from where we're sitting now, with Two women, uh, Liz Lerman of the Dance Exchange. We know her. And Margie Goldberg, 
We know her too. Okay. So the three of us, these three miserable women, uh, came to Rhode Island Avenue and rented space together. And it was fascinating and crazy. Uh, Well, the actors are really filthy and put out cigarettes on the floor and are up late at night. And dancers are very clean and get up early in the morning. So it lasted for a while. But then I met a man named Russell Matheny, Mm -hmm. who is a set designer and a very brilliant fellow. We decided to start a theater. Of course, it's more complicated than that, but we were both, (laughs) you know, in our 30s and had, you know, had a lot of experience, had done a lot of other things. And to make a very long story short, uh, we walked up and down 14th Street, which was right around the corner from Rhode Island, 14th and Rhode Island, where we'd had the studio. At that time, uh, that was a few years after the riots, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, it was, you know, totally bombed out, completely right. shuttered. Uh, but there were industrial buildings. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm from Chicago, where there was a small theater movement of theaters that uh, were created in industrial spaces. Mm-hmm. So between about 1905 and 1915, uh, 14th Street was called Automobile Row. And there were these industrial buildings, six of them left, uh, that had auto showrooms in them. So now why is that important? Because the columns were wide enough to drive cars in and out, and they had big industrial elevators, and they were really sturdy concrete buildings. And Russell said, the columns are wide enough, (laughs) we could put theaters in here, into these industrial buildings. And we liked a kind of, you know, beginning with found space, Uh industrial chic, uh, but a kind of refined industrial. So we had a strong aesthetic sense about Mm -hmm. kind of theaters. And we walked down the street and we found one on Church Street. Mm -hmm. So that was 1401 Church Street. But we built that first theater, you know, with our own hands and... My students of three years were great volunteers and followed you up the street. Followed me up the street. So you, that was 1978 when the when you began the theater company. Um, the DC Commission was established ten years prior, 1968. So we're coming up on our 50th. Exactly. Y'all are coming up on the 40th. So what? What role or interaction did you have with the Arts and Humanities Commission in those early years, if any? Well, I think, you know, one has to go back in time and remember that there was very little support for indigenous art activity in the city. Hmm. It was a sleepy southern town, except for two theaters that was arena and the Washington Theater Club that were both the same size. And there were also, um, you know, a bunch of sort of African-American intellectuals that had kind of outposts on did shows like on Kennedy Street and 16th, Mm. um, 
people from Howard University. And I, I did a pilot play, a production of Marat Saad, mm. uh, which had a black Marat and a white Saad uh, as a pilot production. And for some reason, the Washington Post reviewed it, and it had a like a great review and caused kind of a bit of a fuss. And um, so I, I went to, you know, try to find some money because we found this space and we had no, you know, we just had nothing. So I vaguely heard of the commission, but I, they certainly weren't going to give me any money. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know how they gave anybody any money. That certainly wasn't uh, obvious. And little did I know that, of course, in the 35 years to come that I spent developing and growing the studio theater, um, that the commission would be very much a part of that growth. But not at the very beginning. <laughs> uh, at the very beginning, um, someone told me to go to the Meyer Foundation. So I went there, mm -hmm. and there was a man named Jim Gibson, very very famous philanthropist in the life of Washington. He then went to the Ford Foundation. But uh, he said, uh, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I need rent. I found this place, and uh, there are a lot of rats running around in it. They keep the hot dog uh, carts there from the mall, uh, and it's just a disaster. But I need, you know, $3,000 for, <laughs> for the rent, <laughs> for the, I think for the first three months. And he, literally he said... Let's go right now. I mean, we went downstairs. We got in his car. We went over to, you know, deadly, hateful, rat-infested 14th Street, and there was the space. And so I'm answering your question to say that the commission had nothing to do <laughs> with the very beginning. With the very beginning. But, but the philanthropic community in Washington really had to take risks. And um, I'm not sure when we got the first grant from the commission. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you the difference it made was that the imprimatur of some institution made uh, raising money much easier. So it, it wasn't so important how much that was or even what it was for because, of course, the commission has changed greatly uh, through the years of giving money to you know, for education or for general operating funds or for institutional development or for something that I'll talk about in a little bit. But what mattered was that supposedly there were a group of people uh, with ties to the government and the philanthropic community that said, this is okay. Mm. These people are not going to run away with your money tomorrow. Uh, they're not necessarily going to lose it right now. There's some kind of process um, so I remember that. I remember uh, as we then started to grow and attract audience to come to 14th Street, uh, I, I remember people after a few years said, you have to move. People are not going to come here. There's all sorts of bad stuff going on on the street, and uh, you have to leave. And it was... And some board members said, you have to leave. Uh, and it was right around that time, and I'm sorry, I, I don't have any of the details, but that we got some little D.C. commission grant. 
So what was important was I didn't want to go. I was interested in an urban theater. Mm-hmm. I was interested in, you know, what what was happening in the city um, and on 14th Street. And that was just, you know, in those days of no money and little audience and everything else. It was something that said, no, you're okay. And, and I always felt that about the D.C. Commission, with the exception of the larger grants that we got when we started to build and buy buildings and build and buy buildings and when everything changed, which is maybe 10 or 15 years later. But in those early days, it wasn't that the amounts of money uh, mattered. It was the confidence that it gave to people who were beginning. Mm. You know, you could tell your mother, it's all right, don't worry. (laughs) You had sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval from the district government, exactly. in a sense. Exactly, To put taxpayer dollars behind your ideas. Exactly. So the draw then to 14th Street was the built environment, essentially. Real the real estate. That you already had these structures, these physical venues that could be adapted quite easily for, for what you were looking to do in the theater. I don't know if easily is the right word, but they... There was a foundation in place. Yes, it was possible. Right. It was possible. In in the environment that it had, though, in those days with the drugs and the prostitution and the crime, where were you getting your audiences from? Because you were not... Damned if I knew. You were a brand new theater (laughs) that, you know, it's not that you existed somewhere else and moved across town and brought them with you. You set up camp and they came. Well... I would like to believe uh, that if you build it, they will come. Yes. Um, or if the work speaks to the community, they will come. Mm. So uh, after a few years of experimenting with style, because of my time in Asia, so I did, you know, Peking opera, and I did an Indian epic, also all kinds of horrible things, but they were they were thrilling to work on. Um, we then, in a way, switched our mission somewhat. And you have to remember that this is the time of AIDS, mm. which was ravishing my community mm-hmm. uh, and DuPont Circle. And it was also a time where, uh, you know, issues of race, which have always been huge in Washington, but were particularly, uh, you know, in in my consciousness. So, um, for example, uh, we started to do the early AIDS plays, and they those were not things that uh, the Washington Theater Club had died. The Shakespeare Theater was finding its classical roots. Arena was not interested really in that kind of contemporary relevant. Uh, theater, and I was, and Russell was, and the people around me were. So we started to do those plays, and people started to come. I mean, where did they come from? I mean, first they came, you know, from 17th Street, uh, but then they started to come from all over the city, and then they came from Maryland and Virginia. As a matter of fact, uh, the first season we had 17 subscribers. And the next season, we had 300 
subscribers. That's a pretty good increase. It's a pretty good increase. But the next season, we had a 1,000. That's an even better increase. So it was, I think it spoke to, I like to think it's because of ideas we had about the art. Not, not just the material, but notions of intimacy between the actor and the audience. A theater that was uh, an actor's theater because it had come out of an acting conservatory. So mm-hmm. high-level acting of a kind of visceral... Uh, Chicago style uh, was tremendously important to me, but also high design because of Russell. So we sort of melded. Uh, it was never two boards and a passion. We always had, you know, beautiful seats. And, you know, even though the toilet was overflowing, the theater space itself was was always beautiful. And we, as I say, cared about design, cared about acting. Um, and... Uh, I think, you know, did some quite wonderful and important work. The city uh, had a lot of problems during the 80s and early 90s. And we did a lot of testifying um, about an issue that was to become very important to the future. And that was... um, the stop of the March of Downtown, which had to do with the heights of the buildings after Thomas Circle. So um, there was something that was created, and again, I'm sorry, I don't have dates, in the 80s, the arts overlay. And in those days, that was before the D.C. Commission got a lot of money from the federal government. So in a way, it was more local. It didn't have as much money, but it was more local and um, aided in this testifying, which said that the ceiling, the heights of the buildings couldn't go above a certain height. Mm -hmm. And that depressed the development for 10 years. As a matter of fact, the developers were not happy with us and with the fact that there were there were actually four theaters on 14th Street. Source Theater had two spaces. Woolly Mammoth was in my space. And there were painters. There was, a, it was scruffy, but it was far more sort of early Soho-like or near North Side in Chicago or something like that. And it was more diverse and it was more alive and... Um, but and, and the big money did not come in. Mm. Uh, so it was hard. It, it was rough. But meanwhile, we we're like generating audience and getting bigger mm-hmm. and getting bigger. Um, and then this building across the street became available on the corner of 14th and P. That was a huge step. And before we could try to buy that building... Someone else rented it with a 10-year lease. (laughs) So we did an incredible thing. I went out and I raised a million dollars to build a theater in a building we didn't own. And the D.C. Commission, I said the, the place that it really mattered was there were grants then for construction and for um. And that was just a crazy thing because who was going to give you money to build a theater in a building you didn't own? But somehow... Somehow. (laughs) (laughs) We did. Well, 
Jaylee Mead, um, Mead, uh, Gil Mead was getting involved in arena. We got Jaylee, his wife. That was by far the good person to get. And um, we raised the money and we built a theater. And for 10 years, we were in that first building. We had two floors of that mm-hmm. building. And that's kind of the middle period, I mm-hmm. would say. Now, during that time, the developers started to come in. Yes. Um, we were able to sell air rights, which we had, like like a million dollars a pop uh-huh. to other people in the area because of the, the ceiling. Was we, we did a lot of things that had to do with um, improving the electrical grid at 14th and P. I mean, there, you know, that was a, just a time of gigantic change. And it was kind of hope that, I mean, ridiculous hope that the neighborhood could keep its spirit uh, and also change, which in my opinion is not what happened in the end. But it's that move to 14th and P, you know, Washington Magazine in a story they did a while back said that that is one of the 50 moments that made DC. DC was you moving the theater to 14th and P because it did lead so much of that development and that revitalization of Logan Circle and the 14th Street corridor. But as you say that once upon a time, 14th Street was much more galleries and much more artsy. And now a lot of the galleries aren't there anymore. And we have a lot of restaurants now, but it it has changed. It's changed a great deal. Monty Hoffman, who has done the wharf and is one of the most important developers, you know, in the city, was on my board in those days. He himself, he was just a young guy and he was buying up those buildings on on P Street between 14th and 15th. This is before Whole Foods. And in their materials, it said, um, come, you know, to 14th and P, the studio district, <laughs> and pictures of the theater. I mean, the the importance of the arts to economic development, in my view, um, you know, that's what it was. They used it right away. They saw the potential, this idea of a human scale, which is very important to me as well, try to keep things of a human scale so you could have um, a place to live and you could go to the theater and you could have restaurants. You It would all be, you know, on some sort of human scale, which is a lovely idea. Um, and so... They came in, and then Whole Foods, which I think the Washingtonian article also talks about as mm-hmm. a, you know, a major event on that. But it's true because the theater was so public, and because it's on that corner, which right. is kind of the gateway uh-huh. to the whole of Fourteenth mm-hmm. Street, it had, a, it, it sort of put an imprimatur on the neighborhood, saying, "Oh, this is some chic, you know, place." Mm-hmm. Let's go back a little bit. When you started Studio Theater, there were there was a little class of you founding artistic directors in that same sort of time period of late 70s, early 80s with Howard Schalwitz and Willie Mammoth, Michael Kahn, Shakespeare Theater. And you all went your distinct directions with the type of theater that you were making. But 
I'm curious is what was going on in that niche of time that these would have become very iconic nationally, if not internationally recognized theaters that, you know, these creative types got the idea, Washington, D.C., let's start a theater here. And 35, 40 years later, we're known throughout the world. What was, what was the, the conditions that made it right to start a theater? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. Why did that happen? What, what made it happen? In each case, it was different. Mm. Um, when I was on 1443 Rhode Island Avenue, just down the street from where we're recording, uh, our box office was the payphone. And one day uh, there was a call and I answered the call and it was Howard Chalowitz. <laughs> And he said, uh, I'm thinking of founding a theater. He was in New York. And uh, I'm looking at Washington. What do you think? I'm looking for a place where there's an educated audience, where there's availability, where there's young people, where there's a certain kind of, you know, potential that is, uh, you know, there's a huge theater which has sort of developed some kind of audience, but there's no alternatives. There was also nationally um, a small theater movement or a mid-sized theater movement, which I'm very much a part of. I mean, speaking at national conferences about how to run these mid-sized theaters. Um, so it was in the air that um, a big institutional theater was not the way to make the best art, that keeping things intimate was important, that maybe you didn't need that, that much money in 800 seats uh, to fill every day to make them run. So there were I, other ideas at play. So Howard was coming from New York with some people. He was looking for a place to start a theater, and this was a place. Michael Kahn, the Folger Theater, had died under the previous leadership, and Michael um, was hired, I mean, absolutely, Bob Linos and Ladislav Hoffman and those big white guys who were running things behind the scenes in D.C. went out to find somebody to revive that theater. And so they did. My thing, you know, came from a school and came from kind of individual artists' desires. Okay. Uh, so for uh, our audience that does not know uh, some of these names, Howard Chalwitz was the founding artistic director of Woolly Mammoth Theater, uh, and Michael Kahn was the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theater. So with these three individuals, these three theaters, we have the Studio Theater, which was, uh, is DC's uh, contemporary theater, Woolly Mammoth, uh, the more experimental avant-garde, and Shakespeare Theater, the classical theater. And all three of us retired, <laughs> retiring. <laughs> yes, in the process of or have already. So what's life like? being retired from the theater, or semi-retired because you do still teach. Yes. So I retired as artistic director uh, seven years ago. So that's a long time already. But I continued to um, teach a lot, which is something I never gave up and always mm -hmm. loved, and also have directed uh, and one little acting job. But uh, maybe the most interesting uh, directorial thing that I've done, which might 
uh, be informative in terms of where things are headed was uh, this last year I did a production of Ethel Fugard's Blood Knot for the Mosaic Theater, which is in the Atlas Theater on H Street. And H Street was so wonderful because it reminded me so much of the old of days. The old days of what 14th Street was like. And the audience reminded me of that. And the beginning of the shops, um, the restaurants, and the sense of high noon on Saturday night at 12 o'clock with the, the greatest mix of people running around. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, the history isn't singular. It repeats itself. A city, uh, you know, comes and goes. And um, so that's... That's quite a. Th- it was thrilling for me to do that play, uh, you know, in that, in that, in that space. Well, Joy, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk thank to us. Thank you so much for you know people in interest in uh, in the old theater. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, we we'll talk to you again soon. You've been listening to the Two Hundred Two Studio, a podcast series of the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to the commissioners and staff of the Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Office of Cable Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment, and special thanks to our mayor, Muriel Bowser, for her support of the Arts and Humanities in the District of Columbia. And thanks to you for listening today.